you've got a Bible, um, time to open it up. Back to Luke 23. Maybe we can pop that up on the screen again. Mark, and we'll work our way through that. I wonder if you saw what people saw and heard what they said as they watched Jesus being crucified. I kind of picked up three things I want us to spot today. Um, Let me tell you what they are and then you can see them as we go through. The first is what the first criminal says. He kind of sums up what lots of people say, doesn't he? He he says Jesus is a failed king and he curses him. That's what he sees. He sees a failed king. And what does he say? Well, he curses him. Um, He puts Jesus down. What does the second one say? Well, the second criminal sees something very different. He sees Jesus as the coming king. And he calls on him, asks him to remember him. And then the third one is the centurion. We'll get to that a little bit later on. The centurion, what does he see? Well, he says, surely this was a righteous man. This was an innocent man. And what does he do? Well, he praises God. So we could say, maybe the centurion says, this is an innocent man sent from God. And that's what he sees. And what does he say? Well, he praises, he sings and praises God. So let's um, work our way through those. And really the question for you is, what do you see? When you see the cross, when you think about Christianity, when you come along to church, what is it that you see? And what does that make you say? What does that make you do with the rest of your life? Can you see yourself in the story that we just read? Looking at the cross, looking at Jesus, looking at what Christians believe, where do you put yourself? Maybe you put yourself in that first bracket. Maybe you're a little bit like that first criminal or like all the other people, the crowd, the, um, the important people, the leaders, the people who are just wandering by. Pretty much everybody watching Jesus die reading what it says on top of his cross, that little sign that says, this is the king. Pretty much everybody sees a failed king. Uh, somebody who, who thought that he was Messiah. Maybe that's a strange word. It means promised king, chosen one. The one that God would send into the world to make everything sad come untrue, to wipe away every tear, to do justice, to, to put down wrong and to lift up right. That's what the Messiah was supposed to come and do, the king to rescue everything. And there he is, defeated, hanging on the cross, dying. That's what pretty much everybody sees. I mean, it's kind of obvious to see, isn't it? That when a king dies, their reign comes to an end. If you know the kings and queens of England or prime ministers of Great Britain, if you know them in order, well, when does their rule finish? Either when they die or when they retire, or they're voted out. They don't begin to be kings when they die. It's the opposite. That's how it works. So everybody walks past and sees a king dying and says, well, can't be a very good king then. That's basically what they're saying, isn't it? Come on, come on. If you, if you thought you could save others, you thought you could be the king to rescue us all. You told us you were the Messiah. You did lots of amazing miracles. You even raised somebody from the dead, so the stories go a man called Lazarus, just a few weeks before this, in a town not far from Jerusalem. Lots of these people would have heard about the amazing things that Jesus did. And now he's dying. And so obviously they say, well, he's not much good as a king, is he? I wonder if you do that with God. If you look around at the world, look around at the news. See scenes from Ukraine. Or just think about your own life and think, well, if there is a God, he's not much of a useful God, is he? If there really is a God, well, why hasn't he done something about the suffering in the world? 
If there really is a God, then he either doesn't care about the world or he's not powerful enough to do anything about the world. So what's the point of worshipping him? Probably best to just conclude there isn't a God at all. That's what many people do. Maybe that's some of us who aren't perhaps outright cursing God, but just not really persuaded that he's there. Because if he is, well, how is the world in such a mess? That's what people were thinking as they were walking past the cross. Maybe it's something in your own life. Maybe it's something that disappointed you about God. Maybe you thought God was like this. Maybe you thought God would give you that. Maybe you thought that God would fix this in your life, would make your life go a certain direction, would bring people into your life, and those things just haven't happened. Maybe God has disappointed you in some way. And so this is you, like that criminal saying, not much of a king, not much of a God. Well, if that's you, um, can I ask you to hear what the second criminal says? To think about what the second criminal sees? What does he see? Well, let's read it again. It's from um, verse 40. The other criminal rebuked the first guy and said, don't you fear God? Since you're under the same sentence, we're punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve. These men were probably not just thieves or something like that. They were probably um, rebels, possibly murderers, people who are real troublemakers. Those were the kind of people who got crucified. These are guys who've done something really messed up with their lives. And the first man, he doesn't care. He's just raging against the dying of the light. But the second man is cut to the heart. He recognizes what he's done is wrong. I wonder what brought him to that stage. Well, let's carry on reading what he says. We're punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. He's beginning to own what he's done with his life. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So who does he think Jesus is? He thinks, he still thinks Jesus is a king. Do you see that? And he thinks he's a king who's going to live beyond his death, which is a strange thing, isn't it? He says, no, this king, his rule isn't going to finish when he dies, like all the other kings of this earth. His rule is going to somehow begin when he dies. That's a strange thing to believe, isn't it? How does he see that? Where does he get that from? Well, I think it's because he believes in God. And he says that at the beginning, doesn't he? Don't you fear God? He's probably a Jewish man who's been raised believing in God, but not just in God, believing on what God would do at the end of the world. What did they believe God would do at the end of the world? They believed that God would raise everybody from the dead and that God would be the king forever. He would send a Messiah, a king, to put everything right, that people would come back to life and this king would rule forever. And he sees that Jesus is that king. Jesus is that guy. Jesus is the one who God has promised who's going to come back from the grave somehow. He doesn't know how, but someday going to come back from the grave. And because he's innocent, because he's never done anything wrong, because he's not like him, he's going to be king. He's going to be the one who judges everyone. He's going to be the one who, who whatever he says goes. He's going to be the one to wipe away every tear, to make everything sad come untrue, to put it all back together again. And this man wants to know that king as his own king. Do you see what he sees? Something totally different. He doesn't see a God who's disappointed him. He doesn't see a God who's failed. In fact, he sees a God who's succeeding. He sees a God who isn't unable to get himself down from the cross. 
doesn't see a God who's weak. He sees a God who's choosing to stay on the cross. Do you see that? The others see that his arms are pinned down, his feet are pinned down, and his power is over. It's run out. But this man, the second criminal, sees that Jesus is choosing to stay there. Have you ever thought about that? That the God who made the world, the God who made you, uses his power to die to do that kind of thing, to become a person like us, to suffer like we do for decades, brought up in a poor family, working a difficult job as a carpenter, that when he eventually begins to teach people and show to them who he really is, lots of people reject him. Lots of people try to get him killed over and over again. Even some of his closest friends betray him. Have you ever thought about what kind of a God it must be who'd be willing to do that for you? And not just to do that, not just to live a difficult life where he was betrayed, where his family even at one point thought he was crazy. Not just to live a difficult life, but to go and die a horrific death like this. Have you ever thought what it must be like to have a God like that as your God? I mean, a God like that must love us immeasurably, right? To go to those lengths. A God like that must really love us. Also, must be really trustworthy, There's been a lot in the news and in our days, even in churches, a lot of struggles with power and influence and people saying that power is bad or that people have just abused their power um, too much and now we need everybody to have enough power and kind of equal it all up. Well, it's true. You can't really trust people with very much power. Power corrupts and as they say, absolute power corrupts absolutely apart from with God. He has all power in the world, the power to make this world, the power to make you and I. And what does he use it to do? He uses it to make himself a person and to go and die on a cross for us. Isn't that amazing? He uses his power to serve other people. And there's a man called Edward Shillito. He was a veteran of World War I. Um, He saw some horrific things. We can only really imagine what he saw. He was a Christian. He came back home and was trying to process, trying to work out how could you believe in God and also have witnessed all the things that he witnessed on, uh, in the trenches of World War I. He, well, he wrote a poem, it's called The Jesus of the Scars, and one of the verses goes like this. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. To our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a god has wounds, but thou alone. You hear what he's saying? to our wounds, to all of our struggles, to all of our suffering, only a God who suffers can really speak. Only a God who knows what that's like can really come to us and, and be, or give us any hope. Only a God who's been through that is trustworthy. And he says, not, not a God has scars, but thou alone. The one who stumbled um, to his throne. So I wonder if you've seen what the criminal saw that this really is the king who you can trust with your life. This really is the king who we can trust with all power. This really is the king who loves us and the king who welcomes and forgives us. That's what he does for this man, isn't he? Look at what Jesus says to him. When he asks, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom? Jesus says, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's the Christian hope, is that when we close our eyes in death and our bodies sleep, In that moment, our souls wake up, 
Our souls open our eyes and the first thing you see, if you're trusting in Jesus, is him. As you close your eyes in death, the next thing you see in the next moment is the Lord Jesus with his arms open, ready to welcome you home to paradise. Welcome you home and to heaven and one day soon to raise our bodies up and to put them back together again with our souls so we see him with our own eyes in this remade world. That's what this man was hoping in. And that's what Jesus promised to him. But here's a question. What did he have to do to get heaven? What did he have to do to get Jesus to forgive him? Well, think it through. What could he do? It's a bit of a grisly thought, but his arms were literally pinned down. His feet as well. He was pinned to a cross. He couldn't move. He couldn't go to church the next Sunday. He couldn't go and give money to the poor. He could barely do anything at all. He was going to die in a few minutes' time. There's absolutely nothing that he could do to persuade Jesus, to get Jesus, to buy Jesus' forgiveness or get him to promise him um, paradise by anything that he'd done. His arms were pinned down. All he could do was ask. Do you see that? And that's the good news for us this morning. What do we need to do to get Jesus to forgive us? To get him to do what he did for Peter? To get him to do what he did for this man? Well, the answer is ask him. There's nothing that you have to do. There's nothing that God requires of you to buy him off, to contribute to his forgiveness. All you need to do is come to him, own your sin like this man does and ask him to forgive you, ask him to remember you. That's an interesting little phrase because often we think about remembering Jesus, don't we? If, you're, if you've been in church any time, you'll have taken communion or seen people take communion. And what do we do then? Well, we remember Jesus' death for us. But here, this man says, Jesus, will you remember me? That's the other side of the coin, isn't it? That we look to Jesus and say, Lord, I've made a mess of my life and my hands are pinned down. Spiritually speaking, there's nothing I can do to persuade you to forgive me. There's nothing I could offer you that would be a good deal for you. All I'm offering you is my broken sin, my mess, the wreckage I've made of my life. W would you remember me? You see, we come to him and remember him and ask him. And what does he say to us? Yes, truly, I will. I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's really good news. That's really good news if you've made a proper mess of your life. It's really good news if you think that you've lived a pretty good life. To be honest, it'll never measure up. What we deserve is what these men have, and to die and be far away from God. But Jesus dies instead of us and brings us close. Jesus welcomes us when we call on him and says, come and be a part of my kingdom. But how can he do that? There's a question. How on earth can a man like this, who's murdered people, presumably, or done something pretty horrendous, how can he be allowed into heaven? How can he be welcomed home by Jesus, having done nothing to put his life right again? How is that even possible? Well, the answer is in what the centurion says in the next bit of the story. Let me read it to you. From verse 44, it says, About noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Imagine standing there and seeing these things. What would it make you say? For the sun stopped shining. It's not an eclipse that happens for a few minutes and things go a bit shady. No, the sun stops shining. Everything goes black for three hours. And the curtain of the temple, back in the middle of Jerusalem, they're outside, Back in the middle of Jerusalem, the temple curtain is torn in two. We'll get to that in a second. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he breathed his last. The centurion, listen to what he says, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. 
an innocent man. So what's going on here? This otherworldly darkness, like death, comes over the whole land. The darkness of God's judgment. A temple with a curtain. The curtain is torn in two. And a man calls out, this man was righteous and innocent. So why not is Jesus dying? I mean, the two of them say that, don't they? The, the second thief, the second criminal, and the centurion both look at Jesus and say, he shouldn't be dying. He shouldn't be here. He's innocent. So why on earth is he dying? Well, he's dying to do what he prayed for at the beginning. Do you remember that? Do you remember what Jesus said? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. That's what Jesus' work is all about. That's what Jesus' death is all about. He's forgiving them. He's taking what we deserve, death and God's judgment, that darkness, and he's drinking it up on his own. He's dying, although he's innocent, so that we, people who are guilty, don't have to die spiritually. Do you see that? Jesus is taking our place. It's a, a great exchange, a swap is happening. He's innocent, but dying, so that people like us who are guilty can live. The curtain is the picture of that. That death, what is death? It's really being far away from God, being under his judgment. The curtain is the picture of that, that in the temple, there was a little bit in the middle of it where God's presence was said to, to dwell, and you weren't allowed to go in there because this enormous curtain kept you from going in. Only once a year could a priest go in after sacrifices and all this special stuff happened, but not, not any normal people. You and I couldn't go. But what happens when Jesus dies? In that very moment, as darkness comes across the land, the curtain's torn and the way is open for people to walk into the presence of God and for God to walk into the presence of people. For us to remember him and for him to remember us. I wonder if you see that today. I wonder if that's what you see when you see Jesus. Somebody who prays for you, like in that prophecy that Nat read right at the beginning, who makes intercession for the transgressors. What does that mean? Well, the transgressors, people who've sinned, who've made a, sinned, who've made a mess, who've stepped over boundaries, who've not done what we should. That's what transgressors are. Intercession, prayers, praying for someone. What does Jesus do? Right at the beginning of the story, it says, Father, forgive them. They don't really know what they're doing. And at the end, he dies to make it possible for us to be forgiven, for that curtain to be torn, for God's presence to come to us and us to come into his presence. Do you see that? Do you see that that's the story of your own life? The choice that you have, now the curtain's torn, now the darkness is gone, now Jesus has prayed for you to be forgiven. Do you see that your choice is to bring nothing in your hands, but just to come to him and say, Lord Jesus, will you remember me? when you come into your kingdom. We're going to sing in a moment and think about that. And after that, I'm going, to, um, I'm going to ask you to do a few things. Maybe there's a few different kind of folks in the room. So we're going to go through what our responses might be, what we might do and say as a result of what we've seen. But this last thing I just want you to think about is look how this changes the lives of the other people around. At the beginning, they were mocking and taking the mick and saying, you're not much of a king, are you? And then what happens to the people who were standing there in verse 48? Well, all the people who gathered to witness this saw what took place, the darkness. Jesus putting his hand, his life into the hands of his father. The thief and what he says. Jesus' prayers of forgiveness. They see all this stuff and it changes their hearts. They beat their breasts in regret and they walk away. 
changed. The centurion, who's just another day for him, just another execution, he looks up and he's changed. And he says, there's something different about this man. The, th- the second criminal, there's something about Jesus that changes him as well. Jesus' death changes things. Jesus' death plants life into our hearts and it bears fruit. I wonder about you. I wonder as you've seen this, if I've explained what's going on with the cross of Jesus. As you see these things, I wonder if he's planted anything in your heart that might grow. I wonder if you might think of your reaction. Are you, are you still saying, well, he's not really much of a God and willing to turn and walk away? Or are you somebody like the second criminal, somebody like the centurion who says, there's more to this than meets the eye. I think I'd like to know a bit more about Jesus.